Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. On Thursday, July 29th, prisoners at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas, revolted, refusing to return to their cells and reportedly taking over sections of the prison, including the gym, the kitchen, and the yard. The incident began at 10.30 a.m. and was reportedly resolved by Thursday evening, despite statements from the prison guard union that evening that the situation was not under control. The New York City District Attorney's Office has stated that beginning in September, it aims to decriminalize turnstile jumping. This decision is celebrated by many as a meaningful gesture against the criminalization of poverty and homelessness. In a city that relies so heavily on public transportation, turnstile jumping can be a necessity for people who are unable to pay high subway fares. The prosecution of this action means that law enforcement continues to disproportionately target vulnerable communities. Many folks have already been fighting against this criminalization as part of the Swipe It Forward campaign, which encourages people who are able to swipe someone through a turnstile who could not otherwise pay the fare. You may have heard our coverage in previous episodes of the proposed creation of a prison in Letcher County, Kentucky. According to Truthout, it looks as though the plan to construct a maximum security prison on top of a former mountaintop removal coal mining site in eastern Kentucky is dead. Recently, the U.S. Department of Justice withdrew its request for funding for the facility. The planned prison was successfully opposed through a variety of measures, including a grassroots campaign against the $444 million budget. The proposed prison has been the focus of long-term opposition from environmental and human rights organizations. Critics of the project assert that the prison would be detrimental to the prisoner's health, the surrounding community, and the wildlife. Mining-related pollution in the area includes contamination of drinking water that the prison could use. Over a dozen gas wells near the site pose an ongoing threat, as does radon from coal mining. Impacts on the community include possible water pollution from the prison. Further, two federally endangered species, the Indiana bat and the gray bat, live in the area, as do about 60 other species with various levels of state and federal protections. This week, we return to our interview with Mark Cook. You can hear more about his history in last week's episode, but in this episode, Mark leads us through stories from his own release to his project providing jobs for people as they get released from prison and other ambitious plans launched with the Black Panther Party and the George Jackson Brigade. Here's more from Mark. Nineteen seventy-two, the year of the World Fair in Seattle. So I went out scouting around trying to find my son. Uh, my kids, anyways, my, mainly my, the, my youngest son. His mother had abandoned him. She kept him all the way up until that period. And he was staying with, he first started off with a school teacher who brought him to my mother's house, who took care of him for a while and gave him to my sister and then to my brother. Anyways, I finally found him. And he was pretty much he was about 10 years old then, 10 or 11 years old. And I found me a place to stay. Me and him was living together. Then I was going to find his. Uh, foster brother and sister. So I scouted around, I found them and hooked them up together and I was going to adopt them if I ever, ever could. 
I wanted to try and get together with the mother again. So he knew his mother worked in a tavern in downtown Seattle. So he's about nine, ten years old. He took me down there and called his mom out. Maybe we met. And she had hooked up with another guy because I'd been in prison for about uh, seven or eight, eight years, something like that. And I didn't want to break up what was going on. I said, it's cool. I mean, as long as she's taking, you've been taken care of. But I said, you, you was wrong in abandoning him like you did. And she says, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't know what to do. I said, well, you're supposed to take him to my relatives. They would have taken care of him. So anyways, that was a little discussion. We mellowed out after that. Going to the Seattle Community College, I hooked up with a woman there who was teaching there. After I'd finished a year in the college, I was uh, on parole, I looking for work. So I found work in an upholstery shop. And he said, do you know anything about uh, upholstery? I told him, yeah, you know, what I've learned in prison. And so I began working that way, doing a good job, earning a good salary. Decided to go to, to my second year college, which is right across the street from where I was working at Seattle U. Enrolled there with one of them Pell Grants. I was majoring in mathematics. and. Uh, so I was working, going to school, taking care of my kids. And they, Roger Braithwaite, of course, he was part of our escape plan. He was out too, and he came to me. He said, he said, what are we gonna do now? I said, he said, they're closing down that program we started in there. I said, already, why? He says, I don't know. But he said, we gotta go down there and get all of that equipment and bring it to Seattle, set up a program. I said, Roger, you're on nothing but again. We can't do stuff like that. He said, we, you always say that and we always do it. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. We found an attorney. He helped us write a grant. He, used, he said, we're going to use the same people you got the money from before and see if they all go for it. Uh, we had to get the matching funds or matching services and stuff. And he said, yeah, we'll give you the money if you find all this stuff. So we did something that was really weird and caught on later on. Well, I learned this from the Panthers. By the way, when I got to Seattle, this is that, tell you about why I'm, the Panthers weren't working with me in Seattle. This was getting near the end of their run. And Huey Newton was in Cuba, I believe, and Elaine Brown was running the Panthers out of, out of Seattle. They went down there to be her bodyguards. So it was a kind of a skeleton crew that they left up here in Seattle. I, I said, well, the Panthers aren't doing that. I gotta continue to work with this 10-point program the way I can. And we're gonna, do, we're gonna try and run this program for giving, providing jobs for prisoners when they come out. That was their plan. Provide jobs for prisoners who are on parole or probation. That, that was the beginning of it. We was looking for the matching funds. We went to the University of Washington and said, what can you do to help us with this? And said, well, we have a warehouse full of equipment. What kind of work do you want to do? I said, reupholstery and Roger Braithwaite. He said, I did micrographics up here. He set up the identity system for the entire University of Washington before he got arrested. He said, you still got that equipment up here? He says, yes, in the warehouse. We went to the warehouse and we saw that was incredible. Every time somebody invent a new printer or a, co a copier, the university would buy them up, stick everything else in the warehouse because it's a university run by the state and they cannot resell that stuff. So they just stick it in a warehouse and hoping somebody would come along, a nonprofit or something, and ask for it. Well, we came along. Now, I got, the reason I got this idea was the Panthers set up a, a medical clinic be, before I got out in Seattle and they needed equipment and stuff in there. And this doctor said, come with me. And he took them to the warehouse and showed them where the warehouse was. And so I knew it was there. And they set up a clinic that still exists to this day, by the way, in Seattle, it's called Carolyn Downs.
And so we have this uh, project. We finally get the project together. We find, a, I think it was a county-owned warehouse in northern Seattle where we set up a reupholstery, the micrographics. The micrographics was to photocopy all the documents uh, in a county courthouse in King County. It's never been done before because Roger had his skills uh, doing his identification thing. He figured he, he could pull this thing off. They gave us a contract for $1 million. We just started the project for $1 million. And so we had to find more people. The women that were coming out of Purdy, and there was two that were on probation. We got, they were coming out of uh, Walla Walla and Monroe, so we pretty much got the crew together. But we were the supervisors because I was in, uh, learned upholstery in prison. I became the foreman for the upholstery shop. We didn't have no expert beside us at that time. But I also had to do the calculating for our, our work. We used Roger to head up the micrographics thing. We also had a security program, landscaping program, demolition program. So we had five programs going there and we're there all running fast. We got uh, Roger started doing sales. He put somebody else in charge of micrographics. He started going out doing sales. We gave him a credit card. It's one of some worst mistakes we made for <laughs> poor Roger. Because he, he, I didn't know he was a gambler one time. I knew he, he drank a lot, but he was also a gambler. That caught up with him later, later on. And so the, the project was running really well. We had a problem with one prisoner come down there and he molested one of the women workers. And I told him he had to get up there and get his ass out. And I, I ran him out of the uh, place. Well, he came back later because he's working on a, a personal project, a little chair, you know. He said, I wanna work on my chair. And I said, yeah, I tell you to get your ass out of there. That's our chair, you get out. And so I grabbed some shears and I chased him out of the building. Well, we had these people we picked at the heads of the program, like the president and the vice president. We got one from the prison industries. He was working for the state. He saw us when we was in prison. When he heard what we did, he quit his job to come and work for us as president. Then there was a guy who was working as a director in uh, parole service. He came and worked for us. And another one out of what to call a Department of Health and Safety. He came over for us. So there those three, uh, three figureheads that were not ex-cons who gave us a little bit more, you know, fluff. We, it, it's a bad mistake. I mean, we, we didn't see it up front, but they saw where they could get a lot of money out of this. We gave them fairly decent wages, far better than ours. Like I say, Roger went around and he did sales. He took me along to do the calculating of how much it's gonna cost and everything. Uh, we bid against the county, city, and federal, beat every contract using my little thing. And, and oh, I told you I, heard, I got a job at the upholstery shop earlier. And I told him where I had learned. He said, pivot, those guys outbid us every time. I said, yeah, I said, yeah, I wonder how they did that. <laughs> but anyways, I worked for him and he, he never fired me or nothing. But when I, I told him I was going to have to leave and work this program. And sure enough, when I worked it, I got to start stealing some of his, his work away from him. So I, I have all this going. And I'm still trying to work with the Panthers. And these guys from the George Jackson Brigade, they haven't given themselves that name yet, come to me and ask me for funds. You know, maybe you got some funds. I said, no, I'm, I can't do no grants for you. But I, I didn't, didn't spend my money. I spent so much time in prison. I figured I could just live off of cigarettes and candy bars, so to speak, you know. I, I'd never spent broadly. And so I'd, I'd give them some money. And Therese and the two women I talked about who ran women out now, they were closer to Bruce Seidel, who was in the brigade. 
they came to me and said that they want me as a panther to come in and check out their program and help them with it. I said, okay, so I went and checked them out. And one of the of their projects was uh, in the Washington State Penitentiary, they were treating the prisoners pretty rotten, you know, in solitary confinement beatings and stuff like that. They needed some help. They were demonstrating in the prison, but it wasn't getting them nowhere. They wanted help from outside. Well, we had the regular groups, you know, walk, walking around with their signs saying, help the prisoners, blah, blah, blah. We call that gentle persuasion. So we want to do a little more extreme persuasion. Well, the brigade did. I'm just checking them out. And they run it down to me. They said, we're going to do these, these things they had right up, saying why they were going to do these bombings. Well, they sent them to the newspapers and to the radio stations and TV, and they'd read them out loud. Did a bombing, blew out the Department of Corrections. They fired the warden and several guards, got everybody out of solitary confinement. So that worked. So I'm starting to get a feel for this. My bosses in Oakland wanted to know what the brigade was about because they had to carry the name of George Jackson. George Jackson was a field marshal of the Black Panther Party, but he was a prisoner. So I explained to them what they're doing. And in a sense, it amounted to what you might call armed propaganda. They'd do these uh, little newsletters or memos and send them to all the media before they did these bombings. They said the bombings were going to occur at such and such a time. They said, that's cool, you know? So I, I worked with them in one of a pro- another project was uh, women on working for City Light, you know, the, the uh, climbers who did climb the poles and stuff like that got paid more than the women. And they were, all, all of the salaries pretty much more than the women, and they wouldn't let the women climb the poles. And the women wanted that. So they were doing this big strike along with the, the men, but that was their issues. And so we said we had to give them an urge, you know, our extreme uh, uh, the demonstration. And so we sent out our little memos to all the places and tell them at a certain time at midnight, this is New Year's Eve, we're going to put out the lights in the rich area in F. Seattle. And they read it and we blew out the lights, we blew out this transformer and blacked out all the lights in what they call the Laurelhurst area up in Seattle. And sure enough, the women got even pay, equal pay and they got to do the same jobs men were doing. So that was, that was pretty cool. I mean, it worked out. It was, this is all publicized. At that time, they said, we don't know anything about the George Jackson raid. It had nothing to do with him. When I got out of prison 24 years later, I met one of the poll workers. Her name was Heidi. And she said, oh, Mark, you belong to the brigade. I said, yeah. He said, we saluted you every New Year's <laughs> for supporting that strike. And that's the first time I knew that we did get support from them, even though they told the, the government and the officials that they had nothing to do with us. We did the same thing with the BIA uh, for the... Uh, uh, wounded knee demonstrations, the FBI, same thing. We had this new thing where we'd go down to the FBI office. This is before they put padlocks on their doors. and We'd take a quick drying cement and point them in all, all their toilets. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they had to leave the building and go to the other floors and find, find bathrooms. So that was successful. It wasn't successful, they just made the FBI mad and put us on their wanted list, you know. We were able to monitor all the police. We became more and more sophisticated as we went along. Uh, 
we became almost number one on their FBI list. I found out later we, we were only number 13. The Black Panther Party was number 12 at that time. I, that was the most, the, the, it's, in Homeland Security, they call it the uh, greatest domestic uh, terrorist threats. Was the, we were number 12 on that list. So they decided we, they needed the money, and I said, well, I still got money in the bank. They said, no, we're not taking no more of your money. We're going to go out and get our own. And so we started doing these robberies. We'd hit the liquor stores, which is state-owned at the time. We would steal cars. And the funny thing about the way they stole cars isn't like a car thief. They'd return the cars later with a greeting card, a gift card saying, we're, we're sorry we inconvenienced you. Here's your car, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, there's still one woman in Seattle who, who lent her car to us, but it was never returned. Had to set it on fire. But... <laughs> Yeah, I worked with her in the movement constantly, and she, she never she didn't, can't get over this. Her friend, Therese Coupe, is the one who she lent the car to. Uh, so in one of the, the fatal things for the brigade, wasn't for the total brigade, but they decided to do a bank robbery. And I told, we checked out all the police, we monitored all the police, you know, we had their uh, radio waves, and when we had the, had the Seattle County and the FBI, we all had them monitored. We got hold of all the crystals for that stuff. Uh, one, one way we got a lot of our equipment was using these magazines that were given to police to order handcuffs and bulletproof vests and all that stuff. So we were able to get materials that way. And so there was an attempt on what we call the Tukwila Bank robbery in Seattle. This is a, kind of a suburban town right outside of Seattle. Really small town. The, the bank was in a trailer, you know, sitting on blocks. It, it wasn't even a legal bank. But having monitored all the police, we knew exactly how long it would take for them to get to the police station there if they weren't on the road. And I, I hit on these guys, you got to pay attention to that schedule. So three of them went into the bank. And they didn't, weren't getting all the money they wanted to get into the safe. And they messed up the time schedule. I was outside in a car and a police pulled out, out across the street. And so I commenced busting caps at him, uh, using a pistol, ran out of ammunition, they were shooting back at me. I came back with a, a rifle, but more police had, had arrived with the M1. I fired one shot, it jammed, and I, I left him. So one of the guys who came out uh, got shot. He came out and looked around, saw the shooting. He turned around to go back in, they shot him, hit him in the back, it was a fatal wound. He bled to death at the bank. Uh, another one was hit in the face and had his jaw broke. Now they swore up and down that I did it, shooting with his pistol. It went through the, the building and hit him in the jaw. And I said, no, no, no. But later on, we put the, the bullet in, uh, next to a ruler in, on a picture and sent it to the newspaper. They printed it. And the police said, well, we don't know if that's a bullet or not because we, we never found a bullet that hit him in the jaw. Okay. <laughs> but they claimed uh, we shot ourselves. Okay, so th th those two get locked up. Bruce Seidel, he died. He died shortly after the bank robbery. We all had uh, underground names at the time. He, he, he was uh, oh, Peter Smith, and I remember that. And uh, Well, they're not the names aren't important right now. So we decided to bust the, the two out of jail. The brigade did. And so we went to some of the original brigade members and, oh, they came to us. They wanted to bust Ed Mead out of jail. And Therese said, I'm not going to work with you if you work with those guys. They were kicked out of the brigade because they had, they'd killed somebody. They were trying to find a guy's arm stash and they killed him. Uh, eventually I came along. I, I bought the arms for him out of Arizona. Uh, gave him the money and stuff. So 
Ed Mead and Sherman are locked up in jail. Sherman has a bus to jail, so they take him from the jail to the local hospital, it's King County Hospital, about three blocks from the jail with an escort there and back down again. And so Teresa and Rita says, well, we got somebody who can check on him from the inside. We can watch him from the outside and get the routine down. So we had one of our members, she's a, a black American. We, they were gonna deport her. We saved her from getting deported. The convention did, by the way. <laughs> one of our successes. Her name was Bridget and she was pregnant at, at the time. So she, she went up to the office right across from where the this dental office where this guy's getting his face worked on. And they just sat in this chair and watched him, watched the cops either sit outside or go in close by him. Then go down the stairs out and they told me the whole route. He's a panther from uh, Chicago. Well, they sent me over a panther to do this escape. Gave him the plans and everything. He came from Chicago. So he came over to do this break, but he is on cocaine. So I had to take his place. And even though I knew the route, I was supposed to be mon monitoring the radials. So they, they took him into the hospital. I'd par we parked two cars outside. I had picked up the uh, First Nation woman out of Yakima who was dri driving for me and Rita and Bower in the other car, which is going to take John. Uh, Rita was carrying a, a shotgun and I, I had a pistol and I had a doctor's uniform and a little black bag that I carried a, the gun in. It looked like a stethoscope, so I waited on, on the, the bottom floor and uh, Therese followed, followed him down. He came out the door. He came out the wrong door for one thing. Because we had a plan if he came out that door, I just handcuffed him to a rail there and we split. But he came out the wrong door. He's in the middle of the parking lot. So I walked up behind him and says, I'm taking your, your prisoner. And he turned around and saw the gun. And supposedly he is going to go down for his keys, but his gun was on the same side. And I shot him in the stomach and he went down and I snatched that gun. And he rolled underneath a car. Uh, my intention wasn't to kill him. I just, I, just wanted to, I just wasn't going to get killed at the time. And so uh, they took Sherman and he, had, he was cuffed up to a, to a safe house. And me and Bo, we split in, a, in a, another car. We had two cars. We had to ditch that car and get, get into a second car because these were rented cars. When we rented a car, we steal a license plate from a car that looked like the rented car and put it on there. So if they tried to trace it, they'd just find it. They figured out it was a switch. The first day, they did a dragnet in Seattle and picked up all the young blacks off the street, men, and took us down to uh, the jail. I had this uh, kind of a uh, sheepskin coat, and they used this coat and they put it on everybody when they took these pictures trying to get an identification. This guy is in the hospital, and he's pretty critical, critical injuries. A lot of his uh, liver and spleen and blah, blah, whatever's in there. Uh, and, but it went through and didn't break no bones. And it wasn't all as lethal as, as it could have been. I, I really had bad luck at trying to kill people. When I do try, I'm in prison, I try to kill somebody, it didn't work out. He survived too. But that's, a, that's another story, kind of a funny one too. But anyway. <laughs> Okay, so they picked me up. I was in a laundry, and I just happened to be one of the black people on the streets. They picked me up and took me down to the basement of the police. And they didn't fingerprint me, didn't photograph me, just sat me in there. Uh, when they put me in the car, by the way, they told me if I moved, they, they had a gun on me, you're, you're, you're gonna die. Uh, and this is, I won't say before all the 
police killings that have been, been going on. But it was during that time. I, I knew this may be the end here. But in, in prison, I took the oath of uh, Munchie Carter. Munchie Carter was killed in, uh, in Berkeley, Berkeley, California, by the U.S. people. But he was the head of the Black Guard. So we were the Black Guard in, in, in Walla Walla because we were not allowed to have guns, being prisoners. But being the Black Guard, we could have whatever we wanted to have. So. And the, the oath was what they call the Ulysses Oath. It went, if ever I should break my stride or falter at my comrade's side, this oath shall kill me. If ever my word should prove untrue, should I betray the many or the few, this oath shall kill me. And if ever I withhold my hand and show fear before the hangman, this oath will surely kill me. So we took an oath to die. And so I really, I know I bought into it when I had, had a shotgun on me. And it happened several times uh, after the, uh, while I was in custody. So they, they couldn't uh, pin this uh, robbery on me. This is the FBI who first got me. They couldn't pin the pin. No, it was the city got me first time. That's strange. And they turned me loose. Two days later, they turned me loose. And I figured, you know, maybe I'm home safe, but I got rid of all of the radio equipment and everything, except my little, little joint sitting in the cup. <laughs> they didn't bother that, really. That's the only thing I had that was illegal in the house. So they knocked on the door one morning, and I had to come out. They couldn't find any guns, any bomb, bombing bombs, or any equipment. They couldn't figure out. And they knew my regular MO was not doing this kind of stuff. I never did uh, armed robberies like that that happened in Tukwila. And I didn't know they were looking for the guy in Tukwila, too. Uh, but I found out the second day when they arrested me, they came with the FBI, the marshals, and the city cops, everybody. Was, I had a neat little apartment, a nice yard in the back, you know. But they had to come into the back back way. I just wasn't paying any attention. And so I got arrested. And I was kept in jail for about two years. I was tried first by the feds. They gave me 30 years and for the bank robbery and five years for having a gun, even though they never found a gun. Then I was tried by the state for uh, the escape conspiracy, two, two counts of conspiracy and one count of escape. The escape was t 10 years, the other was for uh, assaulting a police officer and possibly assaulting the police officers in, in, in a bank robbery, which I didn't do. Doyle did that one, I mean, but I took, I took the beef and I, 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 he, they killed him later on. They said they killed him in a shootout, but I saw the autopsy report and he was shot five times in the back of the head. There's no way, you know, he could die in a shootout. But that's when they're just, cops are always killing people. They did, read the whole, uh, the trials on the streets. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. 
Kite Line is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been Kite Line. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.